now to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. As we continue our study, Acts chapter 7 is the text that we will be looking at today. And our text is fairly long. When you come to a narrative portion of the scriptures, you take longer portions of text as you are aiming to capture the main idea in a narrative section of text, and that's why we'll be looking at 50 verses today. But we won't be having a uh, run-through of all 50 verses here in the time of Scripture reading, but we will be looking at these 50 verses in Stephen's defense, Stephen's defense. So why don't we begin our time together in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word, which is eternal. And Father, Lord, as we look at Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, we give you thanks, O God, for his life, his testimony, and his masterful defense of the charges that had been laid against him, and we pray, Father, that you might help us, O God, to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So, Father, open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy word, and help us, Father, to have a great reverence for you as we look into your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, I was at Costco, standing in front of some supplements in the pharmacy section, and a very nice woman came up beside me and asked me if I had tried a particular supplement and asked me what I thought about it. I gave her my opinion about something that was very similar. She began to talk about her inability to sleep. She had been the caregiver of a friend who had died of a brain tumor, and ever since that time, she has had trouble sleeping. So I told her I, too, had a tumor in my head, and some of that tumor was still in there. They weren't able to take it all out because it was wrapped around my right carotid artery. But I told her from the time that I had received that diagnosis to the time of my surgery, I had slept like a baby, the best sleep in my entire life probably came after I found out that I had that. After all, for me, it would be an experience of God's grace. To die is to gain, and I would be in heaven. That led to a long discussion at Costco about (laughs) heaven, God, Christianity, and her faith. And in the middle of that long discussion, which I had mainly gone just to pick up some medication, uh, she mentioned, I don't even know why I'm telling you all of this. She told me about her family history and some of the things that she believed and, and all of that and so, so on and forth. Uh, in the middle of the conversation or near the end, I let her know, well, maybe it's because, you know, nothing's by accident. Uh, <clears throat> I happen to be the pastor of the church locally here in the area. To her surprise, as she thought, uh, I was rather unassuming, and maybe I didn't look like one. 
Then she asked me, what are my thoughts on gays, homosexuality? And we had a very open and very respectful conversation about what God thinks about that subject. After all, I told her it really wasn't my opinion, but what God thought that meant uh, about all that subject. And of course, I agree, I agree with whatever God says. And I discovered that she was very much involved with the LGBT uh, community and organizations, in fact, here. And I had a really very wonderful cordial, and respectful conversation. Gave her my card, and we had a very pleasant conversation as she had had some Christian influence in her past, invited her to think about these things, and if she ever wanted to talk, we could talk in the future. Of course, it was a very good conversation, all of those things in front of the melatonin at Costco. (laughs) I told her I would pray for her, but all that to say is that you never know when you might have the opportunity, when the Lord might bring opportunities for you to talk about your faith, to share of the hope that lies within you. And I believe that if you pray every day and ask God to give you opportunities to witness and share your faith, He will do so. I believe that God will open those doors of opportunities for you, and sometimes you can create those opportunities through your conversations and talk about the Lord and your faith. The Scriptures encourage us always to be prepared, as 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us, and it says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, unquote. Today, in the account of Stephen, who has been arrested and charged with blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the law, and against the temple, today we see his defense his long defense, which he masterfully answers the charges that have been leveled against him. But by way of review, so that we know where we were and how we've come to this point, as we mentioned last week, if you were to take a bird's eye view of the book of Acts, you would be able to see that you can divide it up geographically, that which focuses on Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth as Jesus commissioned his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You can also look at it from a bird's eye view biographically, as the focal point person in those first chapters in Jerusalem was the ministry of Peter. And in the last section of the book of Acts, the focal point is the person of Paul, the apostle Paul, in his missionary endeavors to the othermost parts of the earth. And you can look, as we have been looking at this individual, this very godly individual who is introduced to us in the book of Acts chapter 6, at the person of Stephen. We are introduced to Stephen beginning in Acts chapter 6 because the church had a problem to solve. They had a problem to solve. Some of the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being overlooked in their daily serving of food. Hellenistic Jews were those Jews who were looked down upon by those Judean Jews 
because they had adopted some of the Greek culture, the Greek language, the Greek customs, perhaps their food. They had been perhaps living in other parts of the Mediterranean, but they had come back to Jerusalem to live out the rest of their lives, or perhaps they were here for the day of Pentecost, and they came, and they heard the gospel, and they were saved, and they decided to stay. In any case, many of them came to know Christ, but their widows, as I mentioned, their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Hellenistic widows, as I mentioned, those who were of uh, Judean Jewish heritage, who had kept many of their cultural uh, practices and language, often looked down upon those who were of a Hellenistic background. And so the church had a problem, and so they chose seven men who were chosen. They were to handle the distribution of food, the equitable distribution of food, so that everyone would receive their share. And when we see the individuals that they chose, Stephen tops that list. Stephen, whose name means victor's crown, the Bible portrays him as a very godly individual, a man who was filled, it says, by the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom, filled with grace and power, performing mighty signs and wonders. And he had a tremendous reputation among tens of thousands of new believers. In this very fledgling church, the church whose life could perhaps be measured in days, weeks, at the most months old, and he was an outstanding individual, an outstanding individual who knew the Word of God as well. Chapter 6, verse 9 tells us of a number of individuals from a number of synagogues that rose up to debate Stephen. It says in the text that they argued with him, but this wasn't sort of some sort of yelling match or cantankerous fight. It was more of a debate. That's what that word means. A debate in which they could not overcome the wisdom that he had, the fact that he was speaking as an individual who was filled by the Holy Spirit. And so, as many times when an individual loses an argument, they turn to personal attacks, what some might call ad hominem attacks, attacks against an individual. And they violently dragged him before the Sanhedrin. They stirred up trouble within the crowd. The crowd began to side with those who were opposed to Christians and these leaders, and they violently dragged him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a ruling body of the Jews made up of 70 individuals, leaders, in which there is a 71st individual, the high priest, and the ruling body of the Jews, and they accuse Stephen, they accuse Stephen of speaking in verse 11 of chapter 6 and verse 13 of chapter 6 against four areas in particular, four areas in particular. And those areas are, they accuse him of blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the law and the temple. God, Moses, the law, and the temple. Now, those were things that were held very, very precious by the Jews, and to speak against those things would be considered blasphemy, and thus the person who was found guilty of that would face the penalty of death, according to Leviticus 24.16. These were things that were very precious 
And so to be accused, as I mentioned, of this would be high treason, a supreme offense worthy of death. And so the priest says to Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, are these things so? Are these things so? And what Stephen does in this very long section in the next 49 verses is he presents a defense against the accusations that have been leveled against him, the defense against the charge of blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the law, and against the temple. And he mounts this defense by reiterating Israel's history. And it's a long, long section of text. Now, for many people, perhaps you, might be an individual of few words. And you might say, well, why doesn't he just say no and get to the point? Why does he go on and on and on and on and go through all this history? And maybe you have a spouse like that. I don't know. <laughs> the Jews, however, were very, very fond, very, very proud of their history, very fond of listening to it being reiterated, and they never grew tired of hearing about themselves. And so, you know, this is what he does. He goes through this long history. Maybe it would be like a son or daughter trying to decide if they should even complete school because they have some strange idea of something else, and their parents or grandparents go through this long history about how they came to the States so that they would have many opportunities and their family's hardships, sufferings, and they listen to all of this long story for the purpose that they might have an understanding of their heritage and appreciate what has happened. And so Stephen launches into this long historical defense. At the end, what he does, and in certain sections, what he does is he, he turns the table to indict them as those who had opposed God, who had opposed Moses, who had opposed the law and the temple, how they had twisted the history in order to... Under, in order to serve themselves, their understanding of history. And so we'll be looking at this defense that he mounts here by first looking at passage beginning from verses 1 through 16, in which he glorifies God in his defense. So we look at verse 2. The first thing he does is to identify and to address the charge he's spoken against God. Verse 2, he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and he was in Mesopotamia where he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living." And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they would be in bondage I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. 
What Stephen does here is he addresses, addresses the Sanhedrin. He begins by acknowledging them as brothers and also showing them respect as fathers. And he uses the phrase there, a highly exalted phrase of God, verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. That phrase is only used in one other place, and that is in Psalm 29. If you look in your Bibles at Psalm 29, he uses this phrase in a psalm of great praise that exalts God, that encourages the praise and the exaltation of God in Psalm 29. Some of you might recognize this from a song that you may have sung written similar to this using these verses. But it says in Psalm 29, verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. What Stephen does is he takes this very, very, very exalted title for God, the God of glory, of which they would have known Psalm 29, a psalm of high praise, and he mentions even the name of God throughout this section, this first section of narrative, some 19 times, and he underscores his high view of God, the fact that God appeared to Abraham, to which they would all ascribe that we are children of Abraham, they would say, that God spoke to Abraham in verse 4, that God promised to Abraham and to his descendants an inheritance in verse 5, that it was God who planned for the bondage that they would have and the exodus that they would have, but he also planned for the judgment upon the nation that would place them into bondage, that it would be God's plan for them to serve him, and that God would make a covenant with them, verse 8, and that God's presence, as we didn't read, but you can read in verses 9 and following, God's presence with Joseph and his providential hand in all of these things. And what Stephen does is in the, all of these things and more, Stephen reiterates before these rulers whom he calls brethren and father, his utter conviction that all of these hands were by the mighty hand of God and that God was involved in their history, that he recognizes that God is the one who is the God of glory, who is exalted and who has foreseen all that has come to pass and all that is, and that God is the one who is God. And in so doing, he answers the charge that somehow he would be speaking against God. And he exalts God. And he places God high and lifted up in his words, in the story recognizing God's hand in their history among their people. And by the way, this is a very, very good way to begin many times in the defense of our own faith. It is good to 
begin with the presupposition of God when we answer those who may have a question, when we talk with those who don't know the Lord, when we give a defense of our faith, it is good to begin with the presupposition of the existence of God. After all, if you were to give somebody a Bible and you were to just say, read the Bible, or I encourage you to read the Bible, and if somebody were to pick it up, that's how the Bible itself begins. It begins with the word, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't go through all the proofs of the existence of God. It doesn't go through all of the reasoning of acknowledgement of these are arguments for his existence, etc. It begins with the presupposition that God exists, and yet God has always existed. That's not to say that if somebody has a question and that you won't answer it with some of the traditional reasons, but when we begin, we begin with just the presupposition that God exists. It is helpful and not too difficult even for the non-Christian sometimes to conceive some non-Christians, I should say, to conceive that there is something that is bigger than them. Now, I realize that those who don't know God have suppressed the knowledge of God, as Romans 1 tells us, the testimony of God in all of creation, the testimony of God internally in what, uh, what is right and what is wrong. But there is some semblance that some, that some, by God's grace, may posits to think that maybe there is something that is out there, not in and of themselves, only by God's grace that He opens their eyes to consider that. But the Bible begins with the presupposition that God is, that God is and that God exists. And it is important that we come and approach people with the fact that God is the one who is a creator, who has been existing from all of the time in eternity past. The beginning is God. That's how the Scriptures begin. And Stephen here establishes his conviction about the glory of God and God's hand in the life of Israel. And then what he does is he moves on from that patriarchal period. The patriarchs being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then he moves on to the defense of the second charge that has been leveled against him. And that is speaking against Moses. And he moves on in the narrative from Moses to the Babylonian captivity from verses 17 to 37. And he honors Moses. Verse 17. But as the the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham... The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all of the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power 
in words and deeds. He begins by referencing the land promise, referring in verse 5, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot on the ground, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Stephen, what Stephen does is he moves on from the story of Joseph to his ascension in Egypt as a powerful individual. Israel moved into Egypt, settled in the land of Goshen. They began to multiply and grow as, as Joseph was ruling there underneath Pharaoh. And then Joseph died, the narrative tells us. And upon his death, there was a new king over Egypt that knew nothing of Joseph, that opposed the Israelites, that took advantage of them. And in verse 20, Stephen points out that there was an individual whom God raised up named Moses. And he calls Moses lovely in the sight of God. Verse 22, he says that Moses was educated and a man of power in words and deeds. Never did Moses forget his people, even though he had, was raised in Pharaoh's household. Verse 23 tells us, but when he was approaching the age of 40, this is speaking of Moses, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And this is interesting. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance from the, for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Notice that Moses had some thought, some thought that God had placed him in a position to help his own people. The striking down of an Egyptian wasn't, you see, in some sort of impulse or fit of rage. It was done to defend and to deliver his own people, perhaps to give them some sort of reprieve from the suffering. There was some thought in his mind that he was going to be used of God to deliver them, but they rejected Moses. They rejected Moses. And on the following day, verse 26 says, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled, became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 25, not only had they not understood, but they rejected his leadership. Verse 28 and in verse 30, 30 to 34, Stephen acknowledged that it was the Lord who commissioned Moses to be their leader. It was not Stephen who had rejected Moses. It was the Israelites. He continues on in the narrative. You look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs, verse 36, in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. 
Do you see what Stephen is doing? Stephen not only affirms the leadership of Moses as the one chosen of God, but he compliments Moses as the one who came, who is lovely in the sight of God, who is educated, whom God placed into a position, who even in Moses' mind, Moses believed that he somehow would help in their deliverance. It wasn't Stephen who rejected Moses. It was, as he says, it was these individuals, those, this Moses, whom they disowned. It was the people the Jews who disowned and rejected Moses at that time. It was the people of Israel and the Jewish people who had rejected his leadership. And so he answers the charge of blasphemy, somehow speaking against Moses by exalting Moses and recognizing his leadership, recognizing that God had chosen him. And so there in the text, he begins through this narrative to answer the charge of blasphemy against God, blasphemy against speaking against Moses, blasphemy now against the law. Verse 38. This is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Stephen is here reiterating the account of the Israelites who had gone to Mount Sinai, and as they waited near the base, Moses had ascended and received the commandments from God. Stephen describes these as the living oracles. This is the law that he had received, and Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And notice that the Bible says that Moses received the law. He had received the law. The law wasn't written by Moses. Moses didn't sit down and write the Bible as some liberals might contend. The Word of God was given by God Himself. And their angels were involved as well. Angels were involved as well as it says in the text. There was the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai unidentified, but it does tell us that's reiterated in chapter 7, verse 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Also reiterated in Galatians 3.19, who said, why the law then? Galatians 3.19, it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator till the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. Now, exactly how were angels or this particular angel involved? We don't know. We don't know. It doesn't say. But they were involved in communicating the law to Moses. God gave the law and the agency of angels or the angel here and reiterated once again, it wasn't Moses who wrote the law. He had received the law. But Stephen understands that. What a privilege it is. And he establishes the fact that the law was given by God. Our fathers, though, were unwilling, verse 39, to be obedient to Moses, repudiated him in their hearts, turned back to Egypt. They turned their back on Moses, on what Moses wanted to communicate in the law, bringing the law down to them. And one of the important things as a practical note in defending your faith, of course, you establish the fact that God, there's a supernatural being and presupposition that God exists and that God has been in the beginning. 
It's helpful to establish the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, and it tells us about who God is. The Bible being unique among all books and to begin an apologetic with God and the Word of God because you have to have an objective source of truth outside of yourself in order to discuss something with someone else. Otherwise, it begins your opinion against somebody else's opinion. It begins to be my view against your view, but when you have the Bible, which is established as a unique book, a book that was written over a period of 1,500 years, written by over 40 different authors from all different parts of walks of life, from a shepherd to a king, from those who were individuals, just fishermen, to those who were well-educated, such as a doctor, written over three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, three different languages, written on three different continents, Asia and Europe and Africa, written all all around a period of time of 1,500 years, and yet there is astounding unity and accuracy and the power that it changes lives consistent in theology, having stood the test of time and stood in the test of scrutiny. There is no book like the Word of God. And this Word of God tells us about God who created the heavens and the earth. Because many Many cultures around the world believe in the supernatural realm, but they know not God. And this book tells us the truth about who God is. Stephen clearly states what they know, that they know that Moses had received the law of God, but it was the people who had rejected Moses who brought the law to them. In fact, they turned to idolatry. They turned to idolatry and they didn't regard the time that Moses had come up, had gone up into the mountain in order to receive it. They turned to the gods of Egypt, the text and narrative tells us. They had turned to worshiping the, what they could see. And so he answers the charge against him. Blasphemy against God? No, he exalts and recognizes the power of God. Blasphemy against Moses? No, he recognizes Moses as the chosen leader, that it was the people who turned against Moses. Blasphemy against the law? No. No, the law was given to Moses, he recognizes, by God. And it is the living oracles. And he defends that charge. And he defends, lastly, the charge that he spoke against the temple. Against the temple, verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Verse 45, and having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Now, Stephen's defense, Stephen's defense was that he was very familiar with the temple. He began with the tabernacle. There was a tabernacle that God had instructed them to build. We find that in the book of Exodus and all the instructions that they were to build the tabernacle and the people were to live close to the tabernacle, around the tabernacle by tribe. And then after that, he mentions Solomon's temple, 
which would later be destroyed by the Babylonians. And after the Solomon's temple was destroyed, there was another temple that was rebuilt when they had returned from captivity in Babylon. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, by a man named Zerubbabel in Ezra 5.2. But that temple was also destroyed. The temple in Stephen's day wasn't Solomon's temple. It wasn't Zerubbabel's temple. It was a temple that was built by a non-Jew, and that would have been Herod, who wasn't even a Jew. And even that temple in Stephen's day was going to be destroyed in 70 AD. The point that Stephen was making comes in its culmination in verse 48 in our narrative. However, he says to the Sanhedrin, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is, my, is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? You see, he wasn't guilty of blasphemy against the temple. In fact, he recognized the temple as having been given, been given by God in the tabernacle early on. He was arguing for the fact that God is greater than any temple. As one commentator would write, the temple was the symbol of God's presence, not the prison of his essence. You see, although the Jews, the Jews didn't formally teach that God was only in the temple, that he was confined there, but in practice, they did. They in practice to speak against the temple or a building was to speak against God. They believed, you see, that they themselves there were the center of the world. And in practice, if you really wanted to be close to God, you had to come to the temple. So to speak against the temple would have been considered blasphemous. Ajith Fernando writes in his commentary, quote, It is true to say that at different times in the history of the church, Christians have neglected the teaching of Stephen, that there is no special place such as the Jerusalem temple to worship God. Believers have fought battles, for example, over the place of the altar in worship. On one extreme are the Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and High Church, Anglican, or Episcopalian traditions who have the holy altar depicting the presence of God in the sanctuary. On the other extreme are the Brethren Assemblies, reference to the Plymouth Brethren, who call their places of worship gospel halls. These halls have a pulpit in the middle depicting the primacy of God's Word. Unquote. You see, the fallacy that the Jews had was that they had confined the essence of God to the temple, that God was only there in practice. That's what they would communicate. Knowing that God is everywhere, however, there was a special thing about the temple that made it such a, a grand, grand place. But God and His worship was not to be confined to any one particular place. As Stephen reiterates in verse 48, 
The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my footstool. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? And so he answers the charge. He answers the charge of blasphemy against the temple because it was them who had venerated the temple so much so that it became to them like a place of, uh, of, only, uh, of sacred only worship there. Stephen answers all of these charges. He answers them in this long narrative, the blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, the law, the temple, by showing them that his reverence for God was great. He answers that his respect for Moses as the one who was chosen was there. He answers of his own recognition that God had given the law. There was great, great regard for the law, and his understanding of the temple was very much different from what they had done in venerating the temple, all the way from Abraham to the current time. And it's an apt encouragement to us as we look at this particular account of Stephen's, Stephen's defense, that we too are reminded that with gentleness and with reverence, that we too are to answer those who have questions, answer those who have objections, answer those who may have even accusations against what you and I believe as Christians. As Fernando writes, quote, As God used Stephen to lead the church along a radically new path, Stephen's life and ministry will help us to see the qualities required of those whom God calls to blaze new trails for him. His radicalism not only led him to fearlessly proclaim truths that were un palatable to his audience. It also led him to thunder accusations against him. Consequently, his opponents severely opposed him and even gnashed their teeth at him. But in the midst of it all, Stephen expressed graciousness, the graciousness of God. I hope that we will always be prepared whether it's at Costco or whether it's your neighbor, whether it's at school or whether it's somebody who has some sort of a contention against the things of the Lord, that you would be ready with gentleness and reverence to give an answer for the hope that you have within you such that there might be great regard for God and the Word of God as it tells us the hope of salvation. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we're grateful. We're grateful, Father, for your word which teaches us truth. And Father, what a privilege it is to be able to hold and handle the word of truth, the living oracles that come from you, that convict, that condemn, that give hope, that give life. And we pray, God, that by your Spirit, that you would help us not to shy away from those that would oppose, but to give an apt answer, to share of the hope that is within us, that they too, O oh God, might find life and life everlasting as your Holy Spirit opens the eyes of their heart, removes the blindness from their eyes so that they might see and understand 
the truth, the way of salvation, the way of our Lord Jesus. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.